0: Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast
1: of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation.
0: Welcome back to another episode of the Christ and Culture podcast. I'm Ken Keithley. And today we're speaking with Dr. Bruce Ashford, Professor of Theology and Culture here at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Dr. Ashford is a Senior Fellow in Public Theology at the Kirby Lang Institute for Christian Ethics in Cambridge, as well as a Research Fellow at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Furthermore, he is a participant in the Dulles Colloquium on the Institute of Religion and Public Life Dr. Ashford has served as a political opinion columnist for several national media outlets and as a speechwriter for elected officials. He has written extensively on the subject of politics and the Christian life, including his books, Letters to an American Christian and One Nation Under God, A Christian Hope for American Politics. We'll be speaking with Dr. Ashford on Letters to an American Christian in another episode of our podcast, so don't miss out on that conversation. Dr. Ashford has joined us today to discuss One Nation Under God, which he co-authored with Chris Papillardo, which provides insights into how Christians can best engage in politics in a way that glorifies the Lord. Dr. Ashford, we're definitely glad to have you with us here today. Can you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to write One Nation Under God, A Christian Hope for American Politics?
1: Yes, you know, I've always had an interest in uh, the appropriate intersection of Christianity politics and public life. In uh, the late 90s or actually early to mid 90s, I enrolled at Campbell University, the Harvard of the South, and (laughs) uh, double majored uh, in government and journalism and uh, until I sensed that the Lord was calling me to uh, seminary and to uh, be in a preaching ministry and to do some missions work and be a professor at a seminary. But then my 40th birthday came and uh, it's funny, I didn't think the 40th birthday would matter, but it basically says to you that your life is halfway over. What are the things you want to do in the second half of your life you haven't done in the first half? And the answer to that is that I felt called by God to um, be a Christian witness in the public square on matters of import, politics, and public life. And so I um, I was determined to begin uh, writing in this area that I had been thinking in uh, for more than two decades, and had actually lived in, in Russia for a couple of years in the late 90s in a very troubled social, cultural, and political environment, very secular, and had sort of cut my teeth on how to be a Christian witness in a uh, secular public square when I lived there in in Russia. And so One Nation Under God was written in about six weeks. and uh, Br- 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 Holman came to me and said, uh, we need a small book but uh, we need it immediately. And to write
0: something in six, six weeks <laughs> sounds feverish to me.
1: Yeah, but, you know, the good news is I'd been preparing to write that book for over two decades, and so I was ready. Uh, Chris is a, uh, was very helpful in it, and we were able to—it's a small book. You know, it's, a, I don't know, 100 pages or a little bit more, and gift-sized. So that made it easier.
0: Well, in the book, you warn about two extreme tendencies— uh, that uh, we you say we see in the evangelical community, uh, you you talk about those who hold to unrealistic and salv- salvific expectations, or those who wish to withdraw from the political sphere altogether. Would you want to talk a little bit about how identify? What do you mean by those two yeah. poles? What do you what what do you, what do you see those two extremes uh, to be?
1: Yeah, so one of the extremes is to expect politics to uh, take on messianic dimensions. Now, probably no Christian in America would actually say that or admit to that, but uh, for, for the Christian who has allowed politics to take on messianic dimensions, this might be somebody who listens to hours and hours of uh, political talk radio and then hours of uh, political talk TV at night and then spends a lot of their time on uh, opinion websites and news and politics websites and uh, just has the view in their mind that if things are going to get better in America, if there's going to be revival in the United States of America, it's going to be through the political avenue and there's a sort of a forgetting of the many other spheres of culture where God wants us to work. Art and science, scholarship and education, marriage and family, church, uh, sports and competition. I mean all of these spheres of culture are very important for the Christian witness and it's when we have a combined witness in all those spheres that the Christian message goes out with its most power. Uh, and so when we expect politics to take on enormous proportions, bigger proportions than God intended, it's unhealthy for us and it's ineffective.
0: There there are those you talk about um, that are expecting that somehow America will experience a transformation or a revival, as you say, via the public square. And then there's others who see the uh, public stand of Christians to be a bulwark against an invasion. It, 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 they have a more negative view, but if anything, they may be even more desperate. Yeah, um, And so there is this tendency to view uh, everything in four-year cycles. Yes. Uh, so you argue that we should be taking a, a – zoomed out look uh, that we should be understanding what's going on uh, in political matters within the context of, of the broader scriptural framework. Would you talk about that? What is the greater narrative uh, of scripture that we need to pay attention to?
1: Yeah, let me come back uh, briefly to withdrawal. Didn't get to treat the withdrawal option extreme really quickly and then we'll move into the narrative. Uh, the, the second extreme past Messianic is to withdraw from the political arena. And while that m- might be an option for some Christians who have some particular reason to, it's not a good option for the Christian community. That, um, that's what uh, the, the, uh, many of the Christians did in Germany during the rise of Hitler. And Karl Barth was right to say that this was the fault of the greatest German theologian Martin Luther, who had constructed a theological framework that made people socially, culturally, and politically passive. So it's not okay to take a divinely created sphere of culture, which is politics, and just sort of uniformly withdraw from it. We might be uniformly forced out of it, and if so, then then our political witness will be the gathering of the local church, even if it's in house churches. But We want to be neither messianic nor withdraw. And as you mentioned just a second ago in this next question, uh, the best thing for us to do is to go back into the Bible's teaching on politics. Now the Bible is not a manual on politics, not really a manual on much of anything. It's a sprawling narrative that coheres and tells the true story of the whole world. You can divide that story into three, four, five, six acts if you wish and the, the simplest way of doing it is three acts creation, fall, redemption and corresponding to each of these acts is a question that we can ask uh, when we find ourselves interacting in the sphere of politics. So uh, to start with creation I think that you see that just as God created different kinds of animals and different genders and different kinds of inanimate matter and so forth. He also created the world so that it would eventually have different kinds of culture. And so when God uh, commanded Adam and Eve to till the soil, he was telling them to take what he had given them and change it, bring out its hidden potential. And that's not just agriculture, but all other kinds of culture, including the governmental and political realm. Even without the fall, there would have been a, a uh, some sort of political realm. We would have had to organize our lives together, decide uh, what day we're going to hold the fall festival on, and who's going to bring the pumpkin pie, who's going to bring the pecan pie, because who wants to eat pumpkin pie when you can have pecan pie, and and what time we're going to hold it, and who's going to, you know, which side of the road we're going to drive on. We're going to go with what the Brits do or what the Americans do. So we would have had to organize ourselves, even if the government didn't have to wield the sword. So I think it's a good sphere ordained by God. And uh, one of the questions we always want to ask in a in, in a political activity is what is god's creational design for this sphere of culture and with government and politics i think the the um, God's design is for a political arrangement to achieve justice for the various individuals and communities under its purview that's what god designs this realm to do that and nothing else so it's got a reason for being but limits to what it ought to do for example it ought not to do what the church does it ought not to meddle Second act is the fall and so when sin entered the world it didn't cause human beings all of a sudden not be social, cultural, and political beings, to not be fruitful and multiply, to not till the soil, to not have dominion. It just warped and skewed the way we do it. We do it badly instead of well. We worship idols instead of God and whatever it is you worship is going to affect your politics. And so the question that's associated with the fall is how has the realm of government and politics been corrupted and misdirected or twisted and misdirected by sin and idolatry? Then finally, redemption, that Christ Jesus um, redeems us from our sin and begins the process of renewing us in uh, his image and helping us to conform to his word. And to that extent, the question that we should ask is, how can we untwist what's been twisted in the realm of politics? How can we redirect what's been misdirected? How can we be a good witness in that realm? And that's not, those questions are not easy to answer.
0: No, this next question <laughs> I have for you okay. will we'll be will be uh, trying to apply that point. Uh, go ahead.
1: Yeah, but I just, uh, we ought to work hard at it. You know, we live in a democratic republic in the 21st century in which we have the opportunity not only to vote, but to make our voice heard and for our, our Actions and our witnesses are witness to be seen in coffee shop conversations, uh, f- God forbid, Facebook posts, um, you know, uh, uh, podcasts, and 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 some God gives some people even more opportunity if they're in the legal or uh, legal realm or elected officials or or something like this. So we
0: live in a democratic republic, as you say, but it's not a parliamentary system, it's it, you know, we we have a. Uh, a constitutional system in which we elect a president and a congress rather than a than a parliament in which has a prime minister. One of the effects of that, when you know, one looks at countries that have a parliament, uh, they're able to have a multiplicity of parties. I mean, you think of whether it's uh, the parliamentary system in Great Britain or even in Israel or places, you have five, six or more uh, various parties which allows a Christian to be a little more selective uh, in what th- what their affiliation is. The way that our government is set up, it almost requires a two-party system, Democrat and Republican, which requires then in turn uh, a coalition of disparate and conflicting constituencies within both bodies. I'm thinking within the Democratic Party, you have everything from Bernie Sanders to I mean, think of Scoop Jackson, who was a very conservative Democrat. There's, there's a, an incredible spectrum. S- same thing in the Republican Party. So one finds uh, if he is going to be or she's going to be involved in the political process and you're going to do it effectively and, and actually win an election or two, means you're going to have to be immersed and enmeshed in one of the two political parties. You call for faithfulness and flexibility in that type of engagement. This is very difficult sometimes, particularly as things are so polarized. The issues are so important, and we're talking about uh, the issue of abortion and the pro-life movement. Uh, that uh, we, we talk, we're talking about issues related to, uh, you know, military uh, uh, security and all of those things. How does one? Uh, involve himself or herself in the political process in a way that you're both faithful and flexible, but at the end of the day, you don't feel like you got yourself pretty dirty today.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of good material there. I would just a small rabbit trail. There is a way that we could move to more of a multi-party system without being parliamentary. That's a little uh, soapbox of mine and uh, I'd love to
0: hear you you can give your speech that's what this that's what this podcast is for
1: yeah well James Skillen uh, an evangelical reform political scientist has argued for years that the House of Representatives could go to a system of proportionate representation right now in the House it's winner takes all right Mm -hmm. Uh, you're in such and such district Republicans get 51 percent Democrats get 49 you got one person representing you are a Republican and if you're a Democrat you're you're sorely disappointed and vice versa proportionate representation would take all the votes in a given district and divide them and allot them proportionately. If 51, you know, let's say that 42% of the votes went to a Republican, then 42% of the representatives are Republican. If 3% was the American Solidarity Party, then they get a representative. And if the rest were Democrats, then they get their number. And so you could then have some members of the House of Representatives who represented other political parties. And I think there's some real upsides to that. I also think it's a very far-fetched notion that that would ever happen. Unfortunately, But how can we be faithful and flexible? Uh, I think the first thing we need to uh, recognize is the Bible does not draw a direct line from biblical teaching to public policy in a 21st century democratic republic. It does not do that. It draws a direct line from biblical teaching to moral issues, but then the line from moral issues to public policy issues is notoriously complex, no matter what your favorite talk show host tells you. Your favorite talk show host puts everything in black and white, makes you angry and afraid about anyone who disagrees with him, and makes it uh, very simplistic and clear-cut that Jesus and the Bible are on his side as he's foaming at the mouth. It's just not like that. So, so to give an example, if you were to rank the worst sins in the Bible, you can't just translate that into the worst transgressions in the political realm. The worst sins in the Bible are pride and idolatry. So we you like to make those felonies that are worthy of capital punishment We'd have to slay the whole country because all of us are proud and idolatrous. And so public policy is is very tricky and uh, we want to do our, our very best to reason from our biblical convictions and from the common sense God's given us, natural law reasoning and reason to wise public policy conclusions based on maybe listening to other wise people who have been in the game for a long time. When it comes to being flexible, I think we also have to recognize that on, on some public policy issues, it's not so clear cut. That the, the Bible doesn't give a, a particular solution. And we may have strong opinions, but maybe we can give way a little bit. Politics is the process of hammering out working compromises. The founding fathers did that, and that's why we have a constitution. If they hadn't been able to compromise, we'd have no constitution. We live in an era where there's uh, supposed to be no compromise on any issue. And that's why our legislators have no power, no spine, because constituents just want them to yell and and scream and and not compromise on anything. And everything is made transparent now. Anything they say on the Senate floor, everybody sees it. And so this forces the presidents to engage in executive action. And yet, as soon as they engage in executive action, citizens are angry at them for doing so, rightly so. They should not be using executive action very often. And then because of that, uh, it, it uh, gives a stronger hand to judges to be activists. And they shouldn't be activists from the bench. So we have a, a very dysfunctional system right now. And, uh, but to get back to individual Christians, we want to be faithful to the scriptures, but flexible wherever we can be to, to hammer out legislation and to hammer out ways of living together with people who have very different views than us.
0: Back in the time when one could argue, probably successfully, that the Christian worldview, our Christendom, uh, as, a, as a cultural uh, artifact uh, dominated, particularly, perhaps, in Southern culture, one could uh, engage in the public square in such a way uh, that, that, like you're describing. But as you point out in, in the book, we are rapidly becoming a post-Christian culture or a post-Christian nation. First, I mean, would you just want to explain what you mean by this and then talk about, okay, then how does that impact the model that you are advocating?
1: Yeah, good question. Let me start by bringing up three cultural analysts who have been very helpful for me, maybe a fourth, if I can get through this quickly. Um, the first is uh, Philip Reif, who uh, as uh, started out uh, on the, uh, the left and then by the end of his career found himself on the right, Jewish sociologist, wrote a trilogy called the Sacred Order, Social Order Trilogy, in which he argued that the West, and America in particular, is in the midst of a historically unprecedented attempt to sever sacred order from social order. Now, what is meant by sacred order and social order? Every philosopher and sociologist feels the need to make up some unique phrases so that their work will be distinct and they can communicate with precision. So that's what Dr. Uh, Reef did. Uh, sacred order just means something like a religious and moral ordering of society, and uh, 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 a religious and moral ordering. And then social order just means the way society is arranged. And he argues that the many of the elite people in America, he, he calls the officer class, wants to bark orders to us, have engaged in a project where they removed the influence of. Judaism and Christianity from our social order and Reef said listen historically all civilizations have understood that a religious ordering, religious and moral ordering of things, shapes cultural institutions uh, such as families, court systems, businesses, all of these different institutions, churches, and that then that ordering shapes society, shapes individuals and communities. But once you've sort of severed the influence or weakened the influence of religion, um, the cultural institutions, he said, become death works. Instead of bringing life and vitality to society, they bring death and decay. And uh, he said, This project has not gone well, and it will not go well. And he, he gives a, a note of hope. He said, The world awaits a people. And he doesn't name that people, but I'd like to name it. I think it's the church. The world awaits a people who can recover the frightening beauty of the thou shalt and the thou shalt not.
0: Mm.
1: The beauty of obeying God's commands his permissions of prohibitions. It's frightening because there's a God who's in charge. And we fired him, you know, 60, 70 years ago and tried to live without limits and now we're paying the consequences and rehiring him would be uh, frightening, but beautiful. Second person is Charles Taylor. It's not the same guy who uh, makes the tennis shoes, different uh, Chuck Taylor, uh, philosopher in Canada. And he wrote a book called A Secular Age. It's an enormous book. I don't recommend reading it in Let's bed. Say for fear say
0: that was an ordeal. For reading, f- Yeah, it's a wonderful book, but boy, it's, it's, it's long and dense.
1: And dense, that's right. <laughs> if you read it in bed, I'm afraid that you'll doze off and be crushed to death mid-sentence. So uh, try to read it while you're seated up in a desk. But it's a very good book. I've read it for you, so you don't need to read it. And I'll just say when he talks about a secular age, he doesn't mean we live in an age where nobody's a religious believer. It doesn't mean we live in an age where nobody will use religious language in the public square. It means something else. He means that for the first time in Western history, Christianity has been not only displaced from the default position, but is now positively contested by dozens and dozens and dozens of worldviews, philosophies, and religions. And more than that, just individual takes and spins on life. You know? It's, it's, it's all the it's, eminent,
0: it's, it's it's all eminence and no transcendence.
1: Yes, and it's all done even with christians we live life without any real reference to god we don't really need to pray for him when people get sick we have doctors we don't really need to pray when there's bad things that happen to us we have science and technology to fix it so even religious believers have kind of pushed god out of the out of sight and one of the results is that people view christianity as implausible unimaginable even reprehensible another result is that there is an what Taylor calls an extraordinary moral inarticulacy. And that is that on the one hand, we have some of the highest moral ideals. We think we can completely get rid of poverty. Many people do. We can completely redo our society's institutions so that there will be no injustice in any of those institutions. If we'll just get the smartest people get together and burn our institutions to the ground and rebuild them, we can have a society without war and without evil. And we have these high ideals, but ironically, we no longer have any transcendent moral framework to undergird them. So all we can say is, and we're gonna do this because I say so. And we're left in a situation where all we do is shout each other down. Go ahead. Final guy, quickly, Augusto Del Noce, Italian political philosopher. And the Italians have more to offer than pasta, cappuccinos, and and wine. They uh, also offer a pretty strong tradition of political philosophy. Del Noche in the 50s and 60s was already arguing brilliantly and presciently that the West would be dominated by two gods and these gods would control our political doings and that is uh, two religions, eroticism and scientism. Now scientism is not a a love of science, scientism is an inordinate love of science that says that science is uh, the only sure way to accessing knowledge and the only trustworthy cultural authority. And as Del Noche points out, scientism persecutes religion indirectly by pushing it out of the public square and by condescending to it epistemologically. Eroticism, he says, is different. It persecutes religion directly. Once you have rewritten the moral framework and gender and sexuality, to it go against natural design, God's natural design and what all civilizations everywhere have believed, uh, you have Persecuted religion so directly that you've rendered it impotent. So
0: in such a scenario in which, uh, as as we have been talking about for the last 20 some odd minutes, in that there has been a very alarming trajectory towards a post-Christian culture. Uh, And as a result, there are those who speak in black and white alarmist terms that you've talked about. The, the the a bit earlier. It's then a little surprising, perhaps, that you then call for what Richard Mao calls um, an uncommon civility. In other words, it's it's uh, you you called for a a a level of moderation and civility in our uh, discourse and conversation that some might find uh, a bit surprising. What why is it that at a time of, of almost crisis, you're actually calling for rather than sounding the alarm, but actually being the adult in the room. What, yeah. do, you, what do you mean by that?
1: It's a great way to put it, be the adult in the room. Um, yeah, so, you know, we can make tough arguments and not shed our Christian witness. And I think that's what we need to do. We live in an era where our news media outlets are doing real-time tracking of everything that we watch, read, and listen to. And so they know what keeps us on a show or a website and what uh, loses our interest. And they know that the three emotions that drive us the most are anger, fear, and lust. And so they play off of anger, fear, and lust. And in the political realm, mainly anger and fear. Not a lot of lust in the political realm these days uh, that, that I see going on. Um, uh, that happens more on the news websites mm-hmm. that are semi-pornographic now. Uh, but they are driven by anger and fear. And the point is that the political outlets are now aligned with parties. And so their goal is not to report in a balanced way the facts of a matter. It is to make you angry and afraid of the people on the other side of the aisle and the view that's being put out on the other outlets. And once you become angry and afraid, you, you think that the only thing you can do is to lose your Christian witness and uh, act like everybody else in the public square. And what I want to argue is that we can combine truth and grace uh, the way Jesus did. We can make firm and tough arguments and yet do so in a gracious and humble manner. Truth without grace makes us bullies and jerks in the political realm. Grace without truth makes us political wimps and non-entities, and we want to avoid both.
0: In the last few minutes that we have of the podcast, I would like for us to turn to a person that you uh, direct us to at the end of your book in which you say that evangelicals have something to learn from Augustine and his book, City of God. He wrote, he lived and wrote at a pivotal time in the history of the Roman Empire. It was not going well. They were in many ways, uh, they, were in, they were in a crisis state also uh, and in fact City of God is intended to directly address that crisis and what he ended up doing was not just addressing the crisis but presenting a, a Christian view of history. What is it that Augustine has to say to us today that's helpful and relevant?
1: Yeah, yeah uh, great question. Interesting historical fact is that City of God had uh, there are two sort of main background things we need to know about uh, him writing it. The first was the sacking of Rome, which you alluded to that uh, the Visigoths and the Vandals were invading Rome and the people of Rome were saying, how in the world can these barbarians be making progress and uh, you know, at the gates of our grand city the greatest city ever in the history of the world, as they thought, and they thought that, that, that uh, the world history culminated in the existence of Rome. But the second thing is a Pelagian controversy that Augustine was fresh off of this controversy in which Pelagius and his followers uh, sort of believed that um, whatever happened in the world, including our own salvation, w- was was a kind of fully a, a human venture, that we forced things to happen. And in City of God, he was at pains to explain why uh, Visigoths and Vandals were at the gates of Rome and that was not the fault of Christianity and also to explain to, to Christians that we had better lean in on God's grace and pray for God to act and what happened is a man named Marcellinus wrote Augustine and said hey man I walk in the halls of power here and everyone's these intellectuals are blaming Christianity. Christianity is too weak and passive and is no good for uh, a, a strong Rome we need to get back to the pantheon of gods and so Augustine you're the smart guy Tell me what to say. So Augustine wrote him a 1200 page letter in return that we now call the city of God, as the story goes. And it's an amazing book. And what Augustine argues, he turns the table on the Roman pagans. And he says, listen, Rome is just a bit player in the grand sweep of history. Uh, In fact, the Bible story of the world is the true story of the whole world. And Rome gets to play a little little role in that rather than vice versa. He argued against their political narrative, the found uh, Romulus and Remus founding Rome and showed that that was a violent story and that Rome was actually violent. The Pax Romana was a hoax, that their love for peace was actually a a bloodlust. He argued against a religious narrative that the pantheon of gods is what had made Rome strong. And he showed that even Marcus Vero, their renowned historian of religion, didn't believe it, didn't believe any of it, Thought it was silly that you had gods that had sex with each other and stole things from each other and had petty fights uh, like a soap opera. He argued against their philosophical narrative Now he gave a lot of respect to Plato and to the Platonic tradition and and, uh, Aristotle even a little bit as imported by Cicero and other Roman thinkers. But he said, Platonists are inhibited by their pride because when you come to the point of the incarnation, which is where uh, the visible and the invisible are reconciled, they couldn't buy into the incarnation because they thought that the visible world was inferior or evil. And Augustine was a powerful witness. I think two more things to say about him is that Augustine was ready he had prepared himself to be ready when the time came. And when he was asked to write The City of God, he had spent an immense amount of effort throughout the course of his life to be ready. And I would encourage those of you pastors who are listening to this and Christians who are out there in podcast land to prepare yourself daily to be in the Bible and to be reading good books so that when the time comes, you're ready to take a stand.
0: Yeah, he, he didn't write a 1,200-page book on off the top of his head. As you said, that's the culmination of a lifetime of effort and thinking. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, kind of like I think it was Adrian Rogers was asked, and another preacher before him who was, uh, I forget, escapes me, more historical preacher, how long did it take you to prepare that fine message? He said, well, it took me 30 years and 30 minutes.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly.
1: You know, So if you prepare for 30 years, and when the time comes, you can do what you need to on the spot in 30 minutes. Uh, final little thing about Augustine is that he, uh, he took a missionary approach, which is he found common ground with the Romans. He showed respect to Plato because there's some respect to be given. He showed respect to their authors and to their culture and found some common ground. And standing on that common ground, he reached out a hand to pull them over to the Christian view of things. We've got to do that. We've got to learn to find common ground instead of just being screaming ninnies and shouting down the people who are different than us.
0: We have been listening to uh, Dr. Bruce Ashford and having a conversation with him about his book, One Nation Under God. Christian Hope for American Politics. He co-authored that with Chris Papillardo. This is the Christ and Culture podcast uh, out of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're hoping that you have a great day.